Kodakoto, and welcome to this, the second of our series of talks, Raising the Bar, Auckland Home Edition. For the last three years, we've enjoyed Raising the Bar on one spectacular night in Auckland by bringing 20 of our most thought-provoking academics into the city's bars to give interesting talks. Now, rather than risk that in the current coronavirus environment, we brought everything online this year so that Aucklanders can still get their dose of intellectual inspiration, but at the same time, we can share it with our worldwide community. And we've had lots of interest in today's speaker, microbiologist Susie Wiles. Like many University of Auckland academics, Susie has been at the forefront of making sure that science, not pseudoscience, was driving the decisions that protected us from COVID-19. So without further ado, let me hand you over to your MC for the evening. And that's Dr. Bridget Cool, who will introduce Susie more fully, but also help you pose your questions later on. Thank you, Mark. Susie, as Mark said, is a microbiologist and a bioluminescence enthusiast, but to many she's that pink-haired science lady. The title of Susie's talk is From Glowing Grubs to Superbugs, The Quest for New Medicines. So yes, From Glowing Grubs to Superbugs. Um, let's start with the superbugs uh, in that title. So um, yeah, I'm a, um, a microbiologist and I've been absolutely fascinated with infectious diseases um, since I was a teenager really. Uh, and the book that started everything off, it's called The Fireside Book of Deadly Diseases. I'm not quite sure how I got this book. Um, I can't remember whether I bought it or whether somebody bought it for me. Um, but it was when I was a teenager and it's just full of stories about um, tuberculosis, uh, the plague, all of these amazing, awful <laughs> infectious diseases um, and how they've, uh, I guess, shaped um, uh, humanity. Uh, which is, of course, something we're all living through at the moment uh, with this um, pandemic. But anyway, reading this book really got me interested in infectious diseases. And so when I went off to university, I started studying biology, but ended up um, specializing in medical microbiology. So the um, microbes that cause infections in humans. Um, and then it become very privileged to be able to turn that into an actual career. I guess normally I would have to justify why it's important to study infectious diseases, especially in countries um, like the UK and, and New Zealand, because we always had this impression that um, infectious diseases are not that big a deal for countries like us. Obviously, they are an incredible deal for everybody, um, and we're kind of living through that now. Uh, but I'm going to talk more specifically about bacterial infections rather than viral infections. Um, and I guess this issue that we have where... Um, while we're living through something incredibly frightening at the moment, there are other crises to do with infectious diseases that are, uh, that are with us too, but don't have the same impact as a global pandemic. Um, and so I'm going to start with this uh, number, one in four. So this is the number of people who uh, ordinarily would be hospitalized in New Zealand um, because of an infectious disease. And it's a really large number and it's, and it's grown over time. So there was a really amazing landmark study done in the, uh, published in the Lancet, which took um, all the data from hospitalizations in New Zealand over the last sort of 20, 30 years um, and looked at how those had changed over time. And what they showed was that um, over a 20-year period, hospitalizations from uh, non-communicable diseases had gone up by about 7%, but that in, um, hospitalizations from infectious diseases went up by about 50%. So in New Zealand, they've been a growing, uh, growing issue um, due to all sorts of things that I'm not really going to go into. 
But so we know that the burden of these diseases uh, is high in countries like New Zealand and, and other places. But I guess the thing that has uh, saved our bacon has been that we have these amazing medicines to, uh, to treat infectious diseases. Antibiotics are basically medicines that kill bacteria or, or stop bacteria from growing. And so we have lots of different classes and they work in lots of different ways. And really they started in the like late 1920s um, with their sort of heyday in the sort of 50s and 60s where lots, there was this big kind of almost like a gold rush for antibiotics. Uh, but then in more recent years, um, the discovery of new antibiotics has kind of slowed down. But anyway, so we've had these amazing drugs uh, and they have kind of been what, what, is, what has allowed people to survive from infectious diseases. So as I said, there's lots of different classes and they work in different ways. Uh, and so the reason antibiotics work and they kill bacteria is they specifically target bacterial cells and not our own cells. So they can have, um, they can basically disrupt the cell wall of um, a bacteria or its membrane. They can interfere with the synthesis of proteins, so important um, things that the cell needs to do, its, uh, to do its business. They can impact on the synthesis of really important um, molecules, again, that the cell needs to survive. Um, or they can interfere in the synthesis of um, DNA and RNA, so the genetic material uh, of the um, bacteria. So because all these drugs have different ways that they uh, impact on the bacteria, it means that we essentially have two different um, kind of, I guess, classes of, of drugs. So we have those that we call uh, broad spectrum drugs, and these are because they target uh, something that's in lots of different bacterial species. Um, the opposite to this is narrow spectrum, which is a drug that just targets something quite specific for a small, small number of bacterial species. Um, and then we also have drugs that can basically, uh, because of where they target, they will either kill a bacterium outright, so we call these bactericidal, or actually just stop it from growing. Um, and that then allows our immune system to essentially do the job of, of uh, getting rid of the bacteria. And so those are called bacteriostatic. Okay, so we have all these amazing drugs. They work in lots of different ways, um, but there's a problem. Essentially, there are lots of different ways that bacteria can become resistant to antibiotics, and they depend on the target. So um, their bacteria can produce enzymes that can actually uh, basically chomp up um, antibiotics, they can modify the targets that antibiotics use, um, or they can find ways of bypassing whatever process the antibiotic um, interrupts. Um, or they can make little pumps um, that basically can shove the antibiotic straight back out of the cell again. And so depending on the bacterium and depending on the antibiotic, there are different mechanisms by which they can become resistant. Okay, so bacteria have ways of transferring that resistance um, around. So a bacterium can become resistant by sheer chance, but then that resistance can move to other organisms. And there's three main ways that this can happen. So these are called transformation, transduction, and conjugation. So transformation is a basically the ability of bacteria, some species of bacteria, to take up genetic material from their environment. So imagine that bacteria that became resistant by chance has basically died, uh, it's released its genetic material into the environment, um, and then there are some bacteria that can just basically suck that up and then they can start producing whatever that resistance mechanism is. Um, some bacteria are great at this, you just kind of have to look at them and they'll take up um, this DNA. Uh, others have to be zapped with electricity to do it, and that's kind of how uh, we do what we do in my lab, but I'll get to that in a minute. 
Um, the next way is transduction, and this is basically uh, by bacteria becoming infected with viruses, um, and then these viruses essentially um, inadvertently taking up the, um, the resistance mechanism when they make new copies of the virus. And then when they go off and infect another cell, they can take that resistance with them. And then the last one, which is probably the most important one, uh, is conjugation, which is like the bacterial equivalent of sex. So essentially two bacterial cells can come together, form a bridge, and then basically um, exchange genetic material. And this is, this is kind of an amazing thing, uh, but it also happens between really unrelated species. So it's kind of like the equivalent of, um, I don't know, elephants having sex with manatees or something, you know, so it's completely different species that can do this with each other. Bacteria can become resistant by sheer chance, but then can meet other organisms and transfer this resistance um, to, to them. So the, the, the issue, I guess, with resistance is that um, these mutations that arise by sheer chance, sometimes they can be really bad, and so the bacterium won't survive, and other times they just won't uh, do anything at all. But the bacterium that has them will have a massive advantage wherever we use antibiotics. And the issue has been that all around the world, we have been using antibiotics um, in vast and increasing numbers um, for a very long time in lots of different places. So we obviously use them in humans to treat infection, but also to prevent infection. Um, we use them in uh, agriculture, aquaculture, and horticulture, again, to prevent infection. Um, and also actually the places where antibiotics are made, uh, they can end up in the soil and waters around there. So basically everywhere around the world has been an increasing amount of antibiotic in the environment. Um, and then essentially all the microbes that live in that environment have become exposed to those antibiotics and essentially um, the ones that have basically become resistant have kind of survived. Uh, and so these organisms have kind of been growing in number um, and really it only takes, you know, one person hopping on a plane with a resistant organism in their gut or up their nose to move it to another place. So these are, are these essentially these organisms have kind of been everywhere and growing. What's happened over time is that we have been, so while we've developed lots of antibiotics, the organisms have been developing resistance to those antibiotics as they've become kind of um, in their environment. And essentially every time we've kind of had an antibiotic, uh, at some point in the future, resistance has emerged. And so that wasn't such a big problem in the early days because, you know, that all the, lots of these antibiotics had been discovered, they were all over the place. And so if a doctor discovered a patient that had a resistant organism, they could just go to the cupboard and pick up another antibiotic. The problem is we've been taking these antibiotics out of the um, cupboard faster than we've been filling the cupboard. Essentially, we have got this uh, kind of 30-year period where basically the discovery of new antibiotics kind of slowed to a halt. Um, and so we've now got this period where we haven't been refilling the cupboard. And we call this the discovery void. So what this means now is that basically there are organisms uh, around us that are causing infections for which there are actually no really good treatments left or very few treatments left. And so this is a big issue. In 2014, um, the, uh, the World Health Organization did a big uh, kind of um, evaluation of this. Uh, and Margaret Chan, who was the director general at the time, basically called uh, this resistance problem the end of modern medicine as we know it. And what she meant was that when we lose um, antibiotics, but also antivirals and antifungal agents, we don't just lose our ability to treat people with infections, we lose our ability to keep 
patients safe when we do other things like chemotherapy for cancer, like um, uh, routine uh, operations, transplants, all of these kinds of things. And so this is the future we face where basically it's becoming increasingly difficult to treat people with infections and it's also becoming increasingly difficult to prevent infections in these vulnerable patients. Um, so the whole reason we have things like chemotherapy uh, and transplants is because um, the discovery of antibiotics allowed patients to survive those kinds of procedures. And I guess one of the other things to say is that some of these bacteria can be carried by people with no problems at all. So um, you, could have a bio, uh, you could have a superbug uh, living up your nose or in your gut, even if you've never taken antibiotics before either. Um, you, can, you can have one of these organisms and then it's not until it passes to someone who is vulnerable or perhaps you end up in hospital and it ends up in your bloodstream that it's a big problem. Um, and so this was a case with a woman who had a, um, I think she broke her leg or something or her hip and she ended up dying because she got a superbug that was resistant to uh, 26 of the antibiotics that they tried to kill it with. So this is kind of the future that we face. Um, so uh, a couple of years ago, the, the WHO came up with its list called its priority pathogens. Um, basically, this is the list of organisms that they are asking uh, scientists to focus on um, and try and develop new um, antibiotics for. And they've got, they're in three categories, um, so medium, high, and critical. And those in the critical are the ones for which there really isn't, isn't anything left at all. Um, and so this, this is a big issue. Okay, so that's the superbug. So I hope I've convinced you that these are a big problem. Um, and so now I want to talk a little bit about what my lab does, uh, the bioluminescent superbugs lab. Um, but I'm going to start with the bioluminescence bit. And so this brings us to the glowing grubs part of the talk. Uh, and we'll start with this very famous glowing uh, grub. If you're uh, in New Zealand or know anything about New Zealand, um, this is the glowworm. So these are the larvae of a little fly called the fungus gnat. Um, they spend most of their life as this little larvae. It's um, survived for about uh, nine months to 12 months. Um, and essentially what they do is they, um, they make uh, silk um, hammocks that they um, basically hang in um, on the roof of um, caves. They make these incredible little fishing lines also out of silk that they fill with a kind of sticky, little beads of sticky um, goo and what the this little grub does is it produces light and um, that light tricks flying insects into thinking that it's the exit to the cave so they fly towards the light they get stuck in the sticky fishing line and then they get eaten by this little grub um, and so that light that this little grub produces is bioluminescence it basically means living light and there are lots of creatures that do this it's actually incredibly um, common especially in the ocean so there's loads of uh, basically creatures that have taken this um, production of light and use it for all sorts of different um, purposes. So in this instance, they use it for finding food. There are others that use it to find a mate, like fireflies who use the sort of flashing signal to um, signal to each other. Um, and others that use it as a kind of invisibility cloak, which is awesome, but a story for another day. So um, this light is essentially uh, produced as a byproduct of a chemical reaction. And we still don't quite know exactly what's uh, everything that's involved in the chemical reaction that these um, glowworms uh, produce. But we know an awful lot about the chemical reaction that's used by bacteria, um, especially in the ocean, that glow. Essentially what these bacteria that glow have is five genes called the Lux operon. Um, and two of these genes, Lux A and B, make an enzyme called a luciferase that essentially turns an aldehyde into a fatty acid 
and produces light as a byproduct. There are another three genes in these bacteria called LUX, CD, and E, and those take the fatty acid that's produced as the, um, as the waste product, uh, and they convert it back into an aldehyde. So if bacteria have these five genes, um, they can basically make light. Um, and so what we do in my lab is we take these five genes and we'll kind of put them into any bug that will send stencil long enough for us to engineer by kind of zapping them with electricity. So um, yeah, so that's been my career is basically to take these and put them into superbugs and make them glow in the dark. Why on earth do we want to make glowing, glowing bacteria? I hear you yell at me. <laughs> Um, so one reason is that basically we can use that light um, as a really quick way of counting how many bacteria there are. So normally we would put bacteria on a petri dish and we would count the colonies uh, in this way because um, basically the more bacteria that are the brighter the light will be, we can just put them in a machine that measures light and press a button. Um, but the other really important thing is that um, only living bacteria will glow. So as soon as they're dead, then they basically stop glowing. So we can again use this as a really quick measure of whether the bacteria are dead or alive. So what we can do is put really small amounts of bacteria uh, inside of what we call a 96 well plate. Um, so there's 96 little round uh, circles, we can put the bacteria in those and then we can add different compounds that we're trying to see whether they will kill the bacteria or not. We put them in a machine, measure light. And so where you can see all the colors, that's living bacteria and where you can't see the color, that's basically dead bacteria. And so we have a really quick way of screening thousands and thousands of compounds to see if they are basically could potentially be new antibiotics. Which brings me to antibiotics. <laughs> so basically, um, one of the projects in my lab that's um, sort of been going on over the last few years is to try and find new antibiotics. Uh, and the place that we're looking um, is in New Zealand fungi. So fungi are a kind of really attractive um, uh, kind of potential source of new antibiotics because the, essentially one of the first antibiotics that was ever discovered, penicillin, comes from a fungus, penicillium. Um, and so New Zealand basically has this incredible collection of fungi. Um, it's uh, held at Manaki Whenua, which is one of our Crown Research Institutes. Um, and they have uh, over 10,000 fungi basically um, frozen or well, in liquid nitrogen uh, that have never really been comprehensively searched for antibiotics against the superbugs that we're interested in. Um, so my lab has a collaboration with Bevan Weir. He's the curator of this collection. Um, and he uh, sort of searches it for all sorts of um, compounds that might help kill bacteria that cause plant um, diseases. Uh, but essentially what happens is they grow the fungi for us, they send it to my lab, we pit the fungi against our glowing bacteria. And if the bacteria stop glowing, then we would say that that fungi is perhaps producing something that might kill the bacteria. Then we grow that fungi up in large quantities, we freeze dry it, and then we send those to our collaborator at chemistry, Brent Kopp and his lab. And then it's their job to find out what molecules are in that freeze dried um, lot of fungi to see if they might make new antibiotics. So the hope is that we don't just discover penicillin over and over and over again, we might find something new. And the reason we think New Zealand fungi are so attractive is because if you think about it, um, there are loads of plants and animals in New Zealand that are found nowhere else in the world. So, uh, is, and the same is true of our fungi. And so the question is, are they making new chemistry that isn't, hasn't been um, found uh, before? 
Um, and so one of the things we found uh, originally was that actually it kind of really depends on what you grow the fungi on and um, when you allow them to grow to. And so this is sort of complicating matters because we'd like to just take those 10,000 fungi and grow them on one thing, but actually it looks like you have to change the media. And so what we're doing now is growing the fungi in a smaller selection of um, media and to a different um, sizes to see whether we can maximize the chances of finding um, these new compounds. So we've done actually more than 800 isolates now, um, probably about 1,000 isolates of these 10,000, so we've still got a long way to go. Um, actually, most of them are active, so it's just a case of finding, uh, you know, which are the best ones to go for. We've found about 50 compounds from those, uh, and we have about um, six that are, are novel. So uh, we have kind of some things that might, might look like they might make new antibiotics. The problem, though, is that actually uh, we probably need thousands of compounds in order to make sure that we would have any that actually might make it the whole way through drug, drug discovery and into people. So we've got some promising results, but we've still got a long way to go. And so with that, I will kind of um, say that the next thing that we're really interested in doing uh, is basically um, opening up all of our data to the world. When we publish our results as scientists, uh, kind of think of those as the top of the house. Um, we don't actually publish everything. It's kind of almost impossible to publish everything that we do uh, in a paper. Um, and so that means that there's lots of stuff that's hidden completely unintentionally. It's just because there's nowhere to really put it. Um, and so what I'm really interested in doing in my lab is actually making all of that data all of our results available for others to see um, so that they can see what we've been doing, see what our dead ends were so that they don't sort of go down those same dead ends themselves. Um, so we'll hope, hope we're building kind of websites, hoping to um, put all this up uh, in the next, um, I guess this year. So watch this space. Um, and that, with that, I'll almost end by saying, if you're interested in supporting this research, you can sponsor a fungi. <laughs> so um, we uh, have a website through the university um, that basically allows you to sponsor a fungus. Um, and then we let you know how your fungi is doing. Um, did, it, uh, did it prove to be a winner or did it uh, prove not to have anything interesting in it? And with that, I will hand back to Bridget and I'm very happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Susie. Fascinated talk. You've <laughs> taken us along a really interesting journey uh, for the last half hour and so interesting to see the explanation in the beginning about um, how antibiotics work. A couple of things I'd like to touch base on before we go to a very lively uh, questions that are popping up. <laughs> One of them is thinking about that void in antibiotics not being developed for 30 years. And you might think that with the um, epide epidemiological transition that we still have the predominance of those infectious diseases killing people in low and middle income countries. So is it the fact that um, the money for big pharma is, is is more directed at non-communicable diseases, cardiovascular disease, and that's why there's been this void because the money's not being targeted to, 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 to diseases that are, are killing people in low middle income countries? Uh, yes, that's one, one, I guess, one way uh, to put it. So um, one of the issues is that back in the 90s, there was a real switch in the way that drug discovery was done. So up until that point, it was very much done the way that we do it, where you basically take compounds or things and you pit them against the bacteria, the whole bacteria, and then say, does it kill it or not? In the 90s, there was a real shift to what we call um, target-based design. So saying, we know what the genetic makeup of a, of a bacterium is, what are the chinks in its armor, and then design particular drugs to attack those chinks. 
And so there were many of the pharmaceutical companies spent billions and billions of dollars um, completely rejigging all of their um, antibiotic discovery projects to do this particular approach. And not a single drug made it to market to using that approach. So loads and loads of compounds were found that really did target those things that really did work against the, what they were designed to work against. But when you put them against the whole bacterium, they didn't work. So um, it was a, a really fantastic way of discovering antiviral agents. So it's worked really well for some things, but for bacteria, it was really unsuccessful. And so most of those companies, having spent billions of dollars, just said, we're out of here, right? You know, we might as well go and make something else. And I think combined with the issue of resistance, where, you know, you could spend billions getting a drug to market and then two years later, it's completely useless. You know, this is not a drug, you know, even if you make an antibiotic, the doctors will be going, well, we're only going to prescribe it when absolutely necessary. You know, the economics don't make sense. So it's both been a uh, getting their fingers burned by the way that, you know, about, about how drugs are discovered with um, not being able to sell many of them because of the way that they need to be used because they are so precious. Um, with actually, it's just cheaper and, and more economical to just, you know, to just develop another variant of a drug that lots and lots of people will need to take. So it's a real indication, I think, that this kind of thing should not be a for-profit business, right? Our health should not be a for-profit business. And it's really interesting that um, recently, uh, or in the last few years, um, the UK did another uh, analysis of antibiotic resistance. Um, they got an, economic, uh, an economist to do it, uh, Sir Jim O'Neill. And he, you know, knowing nothing about antibiotic resistance, he was asked to kind of look at this issue, and not just antibiotics, but antivirals and antifungals and say, you know, what is the, uh, what's the economic impact of this going to be? And he came back going, it's going to be massive. You know, these resistant organisms are going to kill more people than cancer. It's going to be huge. Uh, and so he came up with a whole bunch of ways that to try and incentivize the drug companies to come back into the space. And there were things around, you know, tax incentives and giving them ways to get, um, maybe they could have like a, a fast track for their other drugs if they spent money in the space. And um, it's been really interesting that very little has happened since his review which was a few years ago. And so um, last year, late last year, he came out and said he thought that, again, so as, and from an economics point of view, he was like, actually, this just does not work. This is such a big issue in our future that we should be nationalizing pharmaceutical companies. And so, and take, so it's not a for-profit thing anymore. It's obviously not something that's happened, <laughs> but it just shows what a, what a big problem we face, you know, that, that all the discovery work or the vast majority of discovery work is being done by academic labs and, you know, small companies, um, but they don't have the might to move them any, you know, move those drugs any further but it's not economic, uh, uh, economical for the big companies to do it. So we're in a bit of a pickle. I'm, I'm yeah, and now we're in the middle of a pandemic. So we, you know, this is just shows that we need to be doing things differently moving forward. I think. Just a couple of questions that that spring to my mind. Uh, first of all, the length of time from drug discovery. So if you can perhaps, uh, you you've obviously spent months, maybe years, working out what the compounds are, and then the the next team, and then eventually it might get to a clinical trial. What's the usual period of time for that whole process? Gosh, uh, 10 to 20 years, actually, um, which is why this discovery void is so worrying. Um, although what we're seeing in the middle of this pandemic is, um, I guess, is how you can speed it up if people uh, work together. 
So, you know, there's a lot of um, clinical trials going on at the moment of all sorts of potential drugs that might be useful um, against COVID-19. Although I guess none of those are new molecules, right? They're all kind of repurposing of things that have been found before. So, um, yeah, what we're doing is the early stage, which then allows those kinds of things to happen. Um, and I guess the scary thing is that this is the bit that has also been massively underinvested in um, globally uh, over the last sort of 20 years, 20, 30 years. And yeah, it is worrying thinking that, you know, after, you know, we're still, I mean, we've been working on our project for a long time. We've only got a few molecules, you know, and that's right at the very early stages of this. But I guess if we don't start, then there is nothing to come through the pipeline later. Um, and so there are scientists all around the world who are doing stuff, um, you know, similar to me or working in, you know, finding microbes from different environments to see if they make potential antibiotics. There's people who've been isolating bacteria from beards and sloths and all sorts of things to try and say, are these kind of new organisms, will they make unusual compounds that might make good drugs? So frankly, the more of us that are working in this space, the better, because the more chance we have of molecules that actually might make it through this pipeline. So actually leading on to that, um, there's a question here from Karen Thompson. How important is, is international collaboration in your work? So this current piece of work with the fungi that you're doing now, are you collaborating with international colleagues on this? Um, no, because we have all the expertise we need here in New Zealand. So we have this collection of fungi and we have the chemists who are here. Um, the question will be, I guess, if we have compounds uh, that we make, where, what, what would the next stage of that process be like? You know, there's lots of people around the world doing this. The techniques that we've been working on, so making these glowing bacteria, they are available to everybody who wants them. Um, I worked for many years on tuberculosis, um, making uh, my lab basically made glow-in-the-dark tuberculosis. And those strains are being used now around the world to do drug discovery for tuberculosis. So we've made our, our um, reagents available uh, and we have the expertise we need. Uh, but my chemistry colleagues collaborate with other chemists around the world and stuff. So if there were things that they couldn't do, they could send them off to other people who needed to, to do them. Yeah. And just getting back to your, your early, um, the start of your talk, talking about antibiotic resistance, you know, often you'll hear um, of, of people who've got better, so they stopped taking their antibiotics, and, and they, my mother was uh, guilty of this, she'd keep them, and then when she got another dose of bronchitis, oh, I'll just have the other half of that bottle that was, you know, that I didn't finish last time. So how much of that is, is, is a contributor to antibiotic resistance, people not completing um, a cycle of antibiotics or perhaps sharing them saying well you've got bronchitis i've got half a bottle here you can have the rest of mine yeah it's certainly it is one of the contributors i mean there are lots of different contributors but we can all do our bit right so we know that actually people taking antibiotics when they're not necessary is a massive contributor we know that when they don't finish their antibiotics um, that's really important and certainly sharing them with somebody else who may have you know not at all what you had um, is, a, is a big issue. And it actually points to one of the um, major problems with infectious diseases, which again, we've also seen with COVID, in that they're very difficult to die, or they take time to diagnose what it is. So when somebody turns up and they've got a fever, you know, or they've got a, a chesty cough, what do they have? It takes time to find out what they have. And, uh, and what you really need is to know very quickly, is this a bacterial or a viral infection? Because if you take 
antibiotics for viruses, they don't work. <laughs> so you end up with people taking drugs they don't need to take. Um, and, you know, then if it is, say, a bacterial infection, well, which one is it? And is it one that um, this particular antibiotic will kill or, you know, uh, so all of these are massive, um, massive things. And it's actually such a big issue that um, several years ago, the UK started uh, a big, um, a big a prize fund called the Longitude Prize, uh, where they, I think the, the prize is about 10 million pounds but basically for people who solve this problem. So solve being able to um, really quickly identify what infection somebody has, essentially right there at the patient. Um, you know, we're seeing the same thing with uh, COVID where, you know, you take a sample and then it has to go to the lab and it takes, you know, a day or so to get your results back. What doctors really need is to be able to say, it's this and we need to use this antibiotic and we need to do it now. Um, and so there are some kind of techniques that are coming on board, but they are um, expensive uh, and, you know, don't work for everything. So, um, yeah, so, so it's not just treatment, it's also diagnosis that are big issues um, in this field. Thanks, Susie. There's a question here from John Bird. What are more worrying, viruses or bacteria? I think they're all worrying <laughs> in different ways. So um, we know that bacterial infections are a real issue uh, in terms of being able just to do the stuff that we would normally do to keep people healthy. So routine surgery, uh, you know, or if they're unwell, chemotherapy, all those kinds of things. Um, bacteria and fungi too are real issues with those. And we know that we have got very few good antifungal agents and we're running out of these you know, antibiotics. What we're obviously living in the midst of is a viral pandemic. Um, and so, the, you know, this, is, this poses really different challenges. It's kind of, uh, it's an infectious disease challenge that we're seeing on a really compacted timescale. It's impacted us really quickly. It kind of felt like it came out of nowhere. Whereas uh, kind of the problem with bacteria um, and uh, fungi and some, some viruses too that are becoming resistant to the drugs that are normally used to treat them, uh, is a kind of a slow burning problem, a bit like climate change, where we know it's coming and it's getting worse and worse every year. You know, it's going from maybe um, for some, for example, some sexually transmitted diseases, um, you used to be able to take a little course of antibiotics and go home and do that. Now you need to go and have an injection. You know, there are some uh, infections where you actually need to go into hospital and be on IV drip you know, to have your drugs. So that, so even when we do have treatments, they're becoming more difficult, more expensive, uh, you know, to, to administer. Um, and so that's the kind of a, yeah, the slow burning problem like climate change, whereas what we're experiencing right now is a, is a, um, a really acute <laughs> problem. Uh, and I think they're both, they're both issues because we also know that, um, you know, another pandemic could come at any time. And so what I guess what this pandemic is bringing to light is how important infectious diseases are when most people don't really think of them as a big issue. You know, how important it is that we have vaccines, uh, that we use those vaccines, that people take them, um, and that we solve some of these problems that are showing um, just who ends up being vulnerable to infections and how they can impact on our, you know, on, on all of our lives. And here's uh, quite a, an interesting point from Rodney. In discovering new antibacterial compounds or drugs, are we not just causing more problems than solving? Shouldn't we be letting natural selection modify population? Ooh, that, wow. <laughs> natural selection of ours? <laughs> um, that's an interesting uh, concept. I would say that, you know, we are part, so what we're trying to do is uh, 
you're absolutely right. And this doesn't solve the long-term problem because essentially what we are doing is um, we are working against an organism that can work much faster than we can, right? So it takes us 30 years to develop a new antibiotic and they can become resistant in 11 days. So this is clearly not a long-term solution. It is part of the solution and we should be thinking about lots of other things like vaccines and, and other stuff. But we should also be dealing with the underlying reasons why we have high rates of infectious diseases. Um, you know, some of these organisms could be uh, brought under control if we had good housing and you know lots of other things. So uh, again, like any wicked problem, there are lots of aspects to it. I would never claim that we are the you know focusing on the one solution. We are part of a package of things, um, but it absolutely has to be addressed in lots of different ways. When I'm at my lowest, I would kind of say that I'm. I wonder whether what we are living through, although this, this isn't going to feel like this in the middle of a global pandemic, but is some kind of golden age where, you know, for most of, of our history, people, you know, the vast majority of people have had very short lives. Uh, and so, and then, you know, there were the wealthy and everyone, the privileged who could live long lives, but most people didn't have long lives. Um, and then what, what antibiotics and sanitation and vaccination have brought us has been a lengthening of our lives, which has brought with it other issues like cancer and heart disease. But I wonder whether if we, are we, will people look back in 200 years time or a thousand year time and see this kind of blip in human history where we had really long lives because we had these amazing drugs and then we basically lost them uh, and we went back to having short lives again. And I sometimes wonder that. <laughs> And Lenore raises a good point. Can you assume that all living bacteria would react to the light from the bioluminescence techniques that your lab uses? Or can some bacteria still be living but not necessarily react to the light and therefore not be detected in this manner? Oh, that's a good, yeah, that's a great question. So, um, yes. Um, so we do, so this is a measure of metabolic activity, which is basically their kind of, um, and we do know that some bacteria can enter a state where they um, are very inactive. And so that can be a, a measure. And so we do know that that happens for some bacteria. Um, and so, and actually that's kind of cool because one of the things that that light shows us, so there are other things that we can do where we try and grow the bacteria and if they don't grow, then we know that they're dead. And so actually one of the things our light shows us is things that have an impact on metabolic activity versus things that actually kill. So it's another way of differentiating between those two um, different measures that uh, antibiotics, how antibiotics work, do they kill or do they just stop them from growing? Actually our light is one of the ways that we can measure that. Um, but yeah, so this is, this is something that we know exists in some bacteria. Slightly different tangent here, but um, you've been such a shining light, but for women in science, and I'm sure you've encouraged lots of young women out there to consider um, taking up a career in science. What do you think the barriers are that we don't have more women in science, and how do you think we might address that? Whoa, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a... That's a big and hard question. Gosh, do I be diplomatic or not? Um, I mean, we have a big problem in most societies that women are undervalued. Um, there is so much re research that's been done to show uh, science. So my colleague, Nicola Gaston, wrote an incredible little book called Why Science is Sexist, um, because it is. So we there's 
humongous amounts of evidence from all around the world showing that women are less likely to get funding, women are less likely, you know, to be cited by other authors, um, they publish less, and we're actually, COVID-19 is bringing some of these things to the fore in an incredible way. So there have been a few reports um, over the last month or so that men's productivity in terms of scientific outputs is growing. So men are sending more papers to publishing for preprints and women's is massively dropping. Um, and so that also goes to the, the underlying things around, so who does what in the house? Who are doing, you know, we've, uh, we've been in lockdown for two months. People have been having to educate children at home. Where does that burden fall? And it predominantly, you know, there are lots of incredible men out there who are doing their share, but predominantly the burden falls on women. Um, and so this is something, society is sexist, science is sexist, universities are sexist, women are generally undervalued in lots of ways. I have encountered this throughout my entire career. I'm one of the survivors, you know, but we really need to be listening to the stories of those women who leave and why they leave. And the problem I think is that we do a lot of tinkering around the corners. We have all these incredible projects that, you know, or programs that take individual women and kind of help them succeed rather than getting rid of all the barriers that um, may mean people leave in the first place, you know, and it's, it's, it's even worse if you're, um, you know, a woman um, from a minority group, if you're indigenous, you know, these are, these are, these are things that just compound. And we know this just by, you know, looking at uh, who, what, who gets paid what, right? You know, women are, are underpaid. If you're um, a Māori or Pacifica woman, you're even worse. You know, those, those women are more likely to be on precarious contracts, which again, we are seeing our universities now in the, you know, coming out of COVID, cutting those contracts that are the lifeline of, of you know, our Māori and Pacifica scholars and our emerging scholars. So, it, this is a big problem. And I guess what those of us who have survived need to be doing is fighting for change. Um, and that can be very difficult. It can feel very difficult in, um, in big academic institutions that, uh, yeah, that try pretend like they're making some difference and they're not, which might get me into trouble, but it's a, it's a, it's a big issue. Um, and I think the COVID is going to, is going to make it even worse. Thanks, Susie. And something that, that uh, some of the, the people listening in may be interested in is, is the funding. So, for example, um, what sort of level of funding do you require? How do you get that funding? Are these ideas you come up with yourself or are you responding to, you know, requests for, for funding for a particular area of, of, of interest? That's a great question. So um, there are several different ways uh, that we can get funding. Um, I mean, I have experience in the UK, but more experience here. So one of the ways, um, so here in New Zealand, we have several funders. They are basically, the big funders are essentially through government. So government uh, essentially, you know, hand money over for science, and then it goes to the Marsden Council or the Health Research Council, um, who then have panels of experts who uh, basically decide what to get what gets funded. So there are two things that are needed here. A good idea, which comes from the investigator. Um, there are some funding schemes that will have very specific, they might make calls for things. Um, one of the problems with infectious diseases is we're usually excluded from calls. Uh, so for example, one good, one good example in New Zealand was um, a few years ago, there was a big, they decided to make a big change to funding with the development of what they called the National Science Challenges. And so this was essentially a big campaign to come up with 10 
uh, challenges that were things that New Zealand would face, uh, was facing, would face in the future that could be essentially, you know, that science could help. Um, and uh, there are three health-related challenges and infectious diseases is specifically excluded from every one of them. So there are pots of money I just can't access because of what I study. Because again, it wasn't uh, for whatever reason was decided that that was not something that was either a challenge or that could be fixed or, you know, was worthy of being funded. Um, so going back to the other ones where it's about the, um, the investigator kind of basically puts um, an idea forward, then it's to do with, you know, is your idea any good? Are you any good? Who are you competing against? Um, and the sad reality is that our funding rates in New Zealand are really, really, really low. So I am competing, you know, um, against... So if we say, I think our funding rates are about 10%. So if the 100 applications go in, you know, you have to be one of the 10 to make it. And if you, frankly, if you've got some big professor with a very, very long CV, somebody like me is going to really struggle to get that, get that money. So I've been spectacularly unsuccessful at getting funding in New Zealand. It's been really depressing because when I was in the UK, I was actually extremely successful and because, you know, the rates were higher, it had a different kind of, there was all sorts of different things going on. Um, and that's why I've taken to crowdfunding to, you know, getting people to sponsor fungi to um, philanthropy because the alternative is not doing the science. Um, and to me, that's just not a good alternative. Um, the same, you know, lots of uh, fun, lots of people go to to um, charities for research. There are no specific infectious diseases charities. You know, you can, you know, there's cancer charities and neurological charities and all sorts of things. Um, so infectious diseases are, are a bit neglected <laughs> in this area. And it will be really interesting in a horrible way to see what happens post COVID. Will people realize that infectious diseases are a big issue and start um, funding them appropriately? Um, you know, it requires bigger investment, I guess, by everybody. Um, but yeah, if you're if you're interested, <laughs> you know nobody's running running marathons for diarrhea and tuberculosis, right? This is this is a problem. <laughs> and I think it's you know it is. I mean, I know with my own research, you spend a lot of time applying for grants, and it is, you know, your your hit rate is pretty low. So it does take you know you away from the lab for doing the wonderful work you know that you do, and how important that is. Yeah, I mean, I don't do any lab work anymore. My entire job is based around. Uh, organizing, having ideas, trying to get those ideas funded, supervising the students. I have a great team of people in the lab doing that work, but it's not me anymore because it's my job to try and keep it going. Uh, and it is soul destroying when, you know, application after application comes back as a big fat no. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that was weeks of my time. But we can't do the work without the money. That's the really sad thing. You know, everything we do costs money um, and we have to buy those things. So, yeah. Here's a good question from Heather. What do you think of probiotics that the chemist shop people try to sell us when we get our antibiotic prescriptions filled? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> it's so, oh, it's one of these really tricky things that actually um, there are, so there's some really, really good evidence um, for use of probiotics in some conditions. Like for example, um, there, uh, so babies in India that have diarrhea, if they're given probiotics, you know, it really helps them. So there's some really good cases of where they're really helpful. And then there are others where it's just a little bit of a waste of money and not huge amounts of really good research has been done. And I think it's really telling that um, 
a few years ago when the EU brought in um, some kind of, they tightened up their rules around how you could advertise things. And so they got all, all the probiotic manufacturers basically had to give more evidence in order to be able to make really strong health claims. And the really interesting thing is they still can't make strong health claims. So the evidence just wasn't there, right? So I think if you see something that says supports, supports your immune system, supports whatever, it usually means the evidence isn't really there. And I guess in the case of some things, well, they might not do you any harm. For others, they may do. We just don't know. So, um, yeah, probably just have some live yogurt. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about the fungi, do they look at the biological plausibility, e.g. study animals that have to eat a lot of fungi and find that those animals don't seem to get particular diseases? Does it ever sort of um, anyone look at that level or is it purely just looking at it at a sort of a, a compound level? No, it's purely done at a compound level. I mean, I guess there are, so um, actually one of the things that I would love to um, start a collaboration with would be around, so what are, um, what clues can we get about where to look from um, other knowledge systems? So, uh, um, but this, so this requires, so for example, for example, Mataranga Māori, but it requires, you know, there's no, it, I have no right to go in and demand to know what fungi were used for what, right? This is, this is not my, this is not my right. That's not my knowledge. Um, but I would love to, um, to upskill myself so that I could build those relationships with communities to understand what, you know, if they were interested in pursuing what um, might be the basis for, for how some of their um, remedies worked. And this has been done in other countries. Actually, there's a, there was a, um, there's a group in the UK who are doing what they called ancient biotics. So this is a collaboration between a microbiologist and um, a historian who looks at um, uh, uh, old manuscripts uh, and what, what prompted it was this historian finding a recipe for what was called Bard's Eye Salve mm -hmm. uh, and going to the microbiologist and saying, there's this recipe here for Bard's Eye Salve. You know, what is this? And it turned out that it was, it was made with onions and garlic and all sorts of things, which are horrendous things I wouldn't want to put anywhere near my eye. But it turned out that they were able to discover... Um, that this uh, concoction made some chemicals that killed Staphylococcus aureus, which is a bacterium that causes eye, um, you know, styes and stuff. So there's very clearly really interesting things, you know, that because humans have been experimenting forever. And um, the question is how we can do these experiments in a responsible way that ensures that the knowledge of what things are uh, sort of stays with the communities that have it. So yeah, this is something I would love to explore in the future. That's right. We're seeing some really cool projects in some of our undergraduate project uh, programs about valuing indigenous science knowledge. And they will talk about that at school, they never hear about indigenous researchers or about indigenous scientists. And in one project, they go home and they ask their, their elders about what is perhaps a, a local remedy that's been used. And then they come back and they look at the, the biochemical compounds and things that maybe in that. So they and they say, gosh, we didn't realize that this was science mm. and that, that it has a value. So 
So very interesting. But that goes back to the who gets to do science, right? And which is why I'm also really concerned about, you know, um, all these short-term contracts going and, you know, we've got some incredible Māori and Pacifica colleagues who are in really precarious positions. And, you know, that, that is, you know, precisely the people who should be studying things are the ones who are not given opportunities. So again, that's why it's sort of not my position, you know, it's not something for me to jump in on at all. And I think to getting back to that, getting women and girls into science, um, again, at, at FMHS here, we have a Whakapikiaki program, which takes uh, Māori health professionals into schools when kids are quite young to sort of expose them to this is the sort of what you can do if you want to go into a health career, and this is what you need to do, the subjects you need to take, to sort of light that fire, because often... Um, you know, and you, this is where you've done such an extraordinary job. If, if people don't know that there's a career in science and you can make a career out of this, if they're not exposed to it, they don't even know to imagine that and then to ask about what do I need to do to make that, um, mm. that dream actually come true. And you've done such a fantastic job of being a very <laughs> um, relatable face and personality. And what you've done over this COVID period has been fantastic. Um, lots of people are saying, gosh, it's been great the way you've been able to translate quite complex, um, they're probably not complex to you, but to the rest of <laughs> the rest of us, actually make it seem much more straightforward. So we're really actually almost out of time now, so I'd really like to, um, just to thank you so much for sharing with us the really interesting work you're doing, the passion that you have for it and for, for your contribution to making science and communicating science. So thank you very, very much, Susie. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and thank you for joining us. Wish you a very nice day, evening, and we look forward to seeing you again. <laughs>